at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. This is a special Best of Caller Questions Invest Talk compilation program. Remember, the Invest Talk phone lines never close. Please call with questions 888-99-CHART. 888-99-CHART. They will be played and answered on an upcoming Invest Talk podcast. Welcome to Invest Talk. Above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHART is our number. 888-992-4278. Hey guys, I know you always say if you have a 401k with a company and you leave the company to roll that over into a Roth IRA. But my question is, there's a contribution limit of 6,500 a year for 2023 for a Roth IRA. What happens in the instance when you have more than that in your Roth 401k at your company? Uh, I'm just wondering how that works rolling that over if the contribution limit is 6,500, but you have more. Thanks. I know we don't always say roll it into a Roth IRA because that is typically a taxable event and you have to be comfortable with that, that, that tax hit that you're going to take. What we do say is roll it into a traditional IRA. Uh, if it's not already in a Roth 401k, in a traditional 401k, you roll that into a traditional IRA. If it's in a Roth 401k, you roll it into a Roth IRA. That's how that works. Now, you can take a traditional 401k, roll that into a Roth IRA, but once again, all of that amount is hit to your taxes for that year, income for that year, okay? Um, so that's that's something that you have to be uh, comfortable with, and there's no limit to that. You can, you can convert as much as you want in a particular year from a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, or from a traditional uh, a 401k to a, to a Roth IRA. There's no limit to that, okay? That's, and that, that's not a contribution. That is a conversion. There's a difference. Conversion or contribution. There are limits to Roth contributions. That's the money that you put in each and every year versus your conversion. Um, so at conversion, you want to talk to your CPA, you want to make sure you're comfortable with the tax hit, etc. A contribution, you can you can convert $100,000 in a year and still make a Roth IRA contribution up to the limit, 6,000 this year, 6,500 next year, uh, plus a catch up if you're over the age of 50,000 bucks, uh, etc. So those are the rules around that and make sure you understand the difference between a conversion and a contribution. Hi, Steve, Justin, Dave from Ohio. My question is about preferred stocks. If you could shine a little bit of light on them, I'm trying to produce like a an income stream. If it's a good idea, or just your general thoughts, I'll be looking forward to your answer. Thank you. I don't mind preferred stocks at all, but what you do, preferred stocks are more like bonds. 
Individual companies issue them, okay? Um, so you want to have a company that's pretty strong because if you were going to buy a bond, you want a company that'd be pretty strong because you need to, they need to pay it. A preferred pays a set uh, a yield on their preferred stock, so a certain yield, 5%, 4%, 6%, 7%. And the higher the yield, the more risky the, the stock would be. That's how it usually works. But make sure you look at the fundamentals of the company to make sure that they can pay that preferred uh, yield. So um, in the event of bankruptcy, um, who gets first dibs on the assets of the company are the bondholders, and then the preferred holders, and then the common stock shareholders. So you're higher up in the uh, asset grab if something does happen to the company. But I have no problem with preferreds. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, they've been around for years. And as I said again, make sure the company's strong and can pay that. That's all your biggest concern is. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. Uh, hello, Investock. My name is Enrique calling from San Diego. I have a quick question. I have a YouTube business. And money's starting to trickle in, and I should surpass $600 next year. However, I don't know if the channel is going to fail or not. What would you suggest for me? Should I start an S-Corp, a LLC, a sole proprietorship? Also, in which state would you recommend me doing it? Would it be California or another state like Delaware, Nevada? I would like to hear your thoughts. Thank you very much. Love the show. Well, congratulations on growing your YouTube business. I know that can be very difficult. And it looks like you're getting to a level where you need to think about turning into a true business, which is some sort of an entity, not just being a sole, sole proprietor. Uh, now, which type of entity that depends on many factors? That's a question more for a CPA that needs to dig into you know, any other income that you might have, what state you live in, or filing, what are the what are the requisite laws around that? Now there are typically annual filing uh, costs. Uh, I think for us, we're California S Corp, and I believe it's around eight hundred dollars per year. So there is some cost to kind of maintaining uh, the business, uh, and and that's something once again for a CPA. And and if you're going to open a business you probably want a CPA to run these things by, by not just this year, but consistently. So A, I don't have enough information. B, I'm not the best person to ask, a, answer this because this is more of a small business CPA type of uh, advice to give you. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm more of an investment uh, analyst and, and, and expert. Uh, so a bit different than uh, on the uh, the business side. But I can tell you, for us, we're a California escort. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. You can get through right now. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know Building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, when it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. With total downloads surpassing 50 million, 
Each Invest Talk podcast should be one of your key financial planning and educational tools. Invest Talk is a free download, and hosts Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to provide their unbiased guidance and professional analysis developed from real time data research and years of investing experience. 24 7, rain or shine, during smooth sailing or on rough weather days, the Invest Talk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. You set the agenda. Don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hey, guys. It's Shane from Florida. Love what you guys do. Long listener of the show. My question is about IRAs. Just recently created one. Was wondering how I should allocate my funds. Should I use mutual funds as base of my portfolio? Thanks, guys, for all you do. Appreciate the work. I'll be listening for the answer. Thank you. Should you use mutual funds? Now, this is dependent on what you want to do and what your ultimate goals are. Now, your ultimate goal is to allocate your portfolios as effectively and efficiently as possible for your end goals of financial freedom. That's what everyone's goal should be. Now, that's different for everybody. For some people, that is something that is far in the future, so you want to be aggressive. Uh, for others, it's more driven towards income in the near term and everywhere in between. And then it's how much work do you want to put in? Do you want to be low, low work? Diversification? Mutual funds are a good way to go. Mutual funds, ETFs, mix of them is fine. Now you're not going to learn a whole lot. And so if you want to learn and you want to get better, you want to individual companies and have, you know, be able to do much better than the overall indices and, and other mutual funds, then buying individual stocks and learning, going through the learning process uh, is probably better by buying individual stocks. But that takes time. And you have to be willing to commit. So it's up to you. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I have a question for you about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. Question about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance. If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless. So don't forget to call Invest Talk. 888-99-CHART. So let's keep moving. Let's swing back to another Invest Talk Voice Bank question. 888. All right, guys. Love the show. This is Alan from Hayward. When I'm researching companies on websites like Morningstar, Finviz, Yahoo Finance, Mergent Online, they all have different information for many of the company's ratios. For example, the return on assets ratio is different on all four of those websites for the same company. I tested it with multiple companies and not only were they all off, sometimes the ratios were significantly different. How do I know which website to trust? Clearly at least three of them are wrong or maybe all four. I'm using the free version of all four of these websites. Could that be the reason why they're giving me inaccurate information? Thanks again. I uh, love the show. Very good question. And it's been true. What you've discovered has been true for decades. 
Now, one of the problems is when you're looking at ratios, PE ratios, return to equity, return to assets, liquidity ratios, any, any liquidity ratios, is that you have to figure out how are they computing? Are they using, this? Is, for instance, I'll give you three different ways they compute it. And they're all exactly correct, but they'll all be different numbers. For, let's say, are they computing it based on last year's number? The most recent complete full year, 2021, it was this number. Or are they using the rolling 12 months, the last 12 months, because everything changes every month, right? So that they're using the last 12 months numbers. Okay, well, that would be very different than last year's numbers. Or are they using estimates for the coming year? There's three ways to look at one number, any of the, any of the numbers, return equity, return assets, P ratio, and there's three ways right there, three ways that can give you vastly different numbers, and none of them are wrong. This is one, and I'm not, I'm not going to get into the other issues, but this is one reason why your ratios are, why are they all, all over the place? What's wrong with this? So... What you have to do, and what I've been telling people on this radio show for well over two decades, you have to do decide which ratios you want to focus on. And I would always suggest, and always have, look at the forwards, the estimates coming up. What do those ratios say? And use those. Now, when you look at free, free websites and things, they don't necessarily tell you how they compute it. That's just the way it is, everybody. I'm sorry. 888-99-CHARTERS is our number, everybody. You can reach us. We have lines open, 888-992-4278. So let's go to Paul in San Francisco. Let's talk about interest rates. Yeah, talking about interest rates. I've been hearing that interest rates, higher interest rates, have a bullish effect on the price of financial stocks. Is there a reason for that to happen? Can you tell me what that is? Yes, because they make more money. Remember, their borrowing cost is always low, right? Their borrowing costs. So, yeah, but their bond costs go up when interest rates go up because the Federal Reserve is raising rates. But they generally are able to stay ahead of it by passing those interest rates to you and me and everybody else. It's only when we fall into a recession that it really starts to bite them. And that's the fear. That's why the financial stocks, some, um, some are not doing very well because the fear is, hey, we're going to go into recession and then that they won't make as much money. But just plain old rising interest rates is really a beneficial thing for banks. Okay? It really is. Okay? Yeah, I own some of that too. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate the call. Yeah, the banks can make more money because they raise interest rates just like the Fed raises interest rates. And, of course, who's the one who suffers? Us, you and me. Of course we do. We pay for everything, everybody. Don't ever think corporations pay for things. No, they pass the costs along. Don't ever think that, that you know, whatever the government does raises tax on corporations or raises tax on oil, you know, prices or whatever it is. It's you and I who's going to pay for it. That's who pays for it, the consumer. And that's just how it works. So don't ever cheer that, oh, good, the, the companies are paying more taxes. Well, that means they just got to keep their profit margins by increasing their prices to you and me. And they do do that. History, take a look at history. You don't have to believe me. You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you 888 99Chart. Beginning our experience, we're here to answer your questions. 
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hey, Justin or Steve, this is Ben from Orlando. I know this question has been asked and answered before, but I could use a refresher. I have a Roth 401k through my employer, and in the event of leaving my employer, can you explain the steps of how to roll over your 401k? And uh, I believe there was a certain verbiage you said to use that would uh, ensure that you are not penalized uh, when doing so. I'll listen on the show. Thanks. You've used the term rollover. It's a rollover. So you're going to roll over your 401k. You're going to roll it over into a Roth IRA. So you have a Roth 401k, you roll it over to a Roth IRA, okay? It's a rollover. That term rollover indicates to everybody that's being coming from a 401k. So you, what you do is you go to whatever brokerage house you want to use, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, whoever, and you say, hey, I have a, 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 a a 401k at my old employer, Roth 401k, I want to roll it over into a Roth IRA. Give me the paperwork. Or let's fill out the paperwork, and they'll be happy to do it for you. We do it all the time at our office. We'll do it. Do it all the time. We use TD Ameritrade. We like TD Ameritrade. They don't have any cost of trading, and you know many of them don't anymore. And uh, you know they have a pretty good website and, and very good technology behind them. So we, we like them a lot. A quick reminder, if there's a term that you hear mentioned on the program, but you're unclear about what it means or you have a question about it, we want you to ask. It's very likely that you're not the only one with that same question. 888-99-CHART. Hello, my name is Sue. I'm with in Florida. Just started listening to your show. I'm about 10 years away from retirement, and I'm trying to educate myself. Uh, right now, my portfolio is with Edward Jones and... I don't know, I keep reading that they are quite expensive. But my question is relating to, you refer to position, buy a position, buy a half a position. What exactly does that mean? Is a position the the cost of the stock or is it a specific amount of money? And depending on how many you can, how many stocks you can buy for one position, just trying to educate myself. Love your show. Have a good day. Bye. Well, thank you for the question. I really appreciate that. A position means we're buying a stock or an ETF most of the time, or a bond. Most of the time, I'm referring to a stock. And a position for us, we like to not buy more than 3% of any one stock or any one position in our stock programs. So when I say, uh, well, we put in a half a position, that means I bought one and a half percent of the portfolio and of course that means a number of shares depends how big your portfolio is right a hundred thousand portfolio is very different than a million dollar portfolio but one and a half percent is still one and a half percent now would be a half a position three percent is a full position so it's it's a question of how much of a portfolio that you're buying and we buy three percent many people you can buy up to five percent but you know if you want to like ease into something you don't have to buy the whole position another three percent or the whole five percent so sometimes i mean we bought one percent sometimes and then buy another percent and another percent three three purchases especially since there's no no trading costs anymore so that's what we mean by position. Let's go to John in the Bay Area. Wants to talk about housing. Hey, Justin. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Uh, I just bought a house recently, and um, I 
I think I probably overbid, but anyway, about 65% of my take-home income goes to mortgage and utilities. And uh, before this, I was renting, and only I think only 30% of my take-home income was going to housing. Mm. Uh, I got a pretty good interest rate at 3.25%. I was wondering if it's good to just stick it out for long term, or you know, if I do walk away from it, if I just um, dollar cost average into the market, if I can get the same gains. Do you think it's better to stick it out or just do whatever saves me money? Well, here's the question. Here's the first question. And this is a question everybody should be asking about their primary residence. Do you like living there? Are you happy living there? Well, well I, I just moved in not too long ago. It's just a difficult adjustment. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this is the right choice. I'm sure I'll get used to it after a while. Okay. Well, getting used to it and liking it are two different things, I think. Um, and I, I, I say this consistently. Primary residence should never be about making money. So you don't think about your primary residence as making money. Nobody should ever think of their primary residence as, oh, I'm going to make X amount on this property. It's not what, that's not the utility of a primary residence. It's not a vehicle to make money. Yes, prices have gone up over a long term uh, over the last 20, 30 years because interest rates have fallen. Now we are in an environment where the price of the property is not going to do very well, especially in, uh, inflation adjusted. Going to do poor. That's what real estate prices are going to do for the next probably 20 or 30 years, most likely. Because you're not going to have that tailwind of lower and lower interest rates. In fact, you're going to have an environment that's a lot like this, where interest rates are going to surge higher, they're probably going to moderate, then they'll surge higher again. At best case, they're going to stay in the you know mid-single digits for many decades. That's best case, um, and then you're you're it's going to be all about income in the in the particular area. Now you're in the Bay Area, not a good place to be owning real estate. Just not. Uh, too many people moving out of the area. People aren't going to make money like they were before during the tech boom. It's one of the worst places to own residential real estate um, in the country right now. But at the end of the day, what your primary residence is for is to live in and be happy in location, amenities, size, etc. That's what's most important. And if you're happy, great, then you stick it out, you, you can afford it, etc. Go for it. If you are unhappy, then you need to find a way to be out of it. How you do that, it's up to you. Now we're heading into a break. I'm ready to take your calls now at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. 
Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888 992 4278. We're going to listen to our friend Art in Menlo Park. Hi, Art. Hi, Steve. How's it going? Good. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you a question on. Um mortgage reduction because i know that uh you you like to uh have the uh, mortgage paid off by the time you retire correct so um i've got uh a mortgage but i was thinking about paying it off but i've decided not to because since the interest rates have gone up so much right i was thinking uh i'll get you know a decent amount of interest from the money that I was going to pay the mortgage off with. That's probably so, the only reason why you would make that kind of decision. What's the mortgage rate that you're paying right now? Uh, just over three. Yeah, so you, see, you can make almost double that in a pretty conservative uh, you know, bond or even a, a high-paying dividend that, like, you know, one of the safer companies out there, Verizon, you know. I mean, Verizon, not, not that I'm suggesting that because I'm not supposed to, uh, pays, you know, 6.9%. I mean, and you know they're not going out of business or going anywhere, and they've never reduced their dividend. But, yeah, uh, that's the only way it makes sense is that you make more money on the money, you know. But most people that I talk to on Air Art, you know, they just go and squander the money they, you know, they don't. So that's why I always suggest pay off your mortgage in retirement. Don't just spend it. You know, you know, so anyways, no. So that's not a bad decision to make as long as you're disciplined enough to do it. You know, that to go ahead and buy something that will pay you more than the mortgage costs. It's a good use of your money. Okay. Clark, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 
This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial, where principals and Invest Talk hosts Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are independent financial advisors. For clients, they are fiduciaries. Steve and Justin have a duty and a commitment to always place the interests of their clients ahead of the firm. This is different from the way many other organizations operate. And one way you can realize the benefit of an association with KPP Financial is to know that KPP practices parallel investing. This means that the personal investment accounts of KPP principals participate with client investments at equal prices and percentages. It's an important difference. You can learn more anytime at investtalk.com or reach out to Steve Peasley and Justin Klein by emailing or calling their Irvine, California office. The Invest Talk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with questions, 888-99-CHART. Hey guys, my name is Kevin White from San Francisco. I wanted to know about iron butterfly options. I'm pretty experienced in options, but I, I've never really touched this one. And I was wondering, would it be considered... I guess I will call it a passive aggressive investment to hunt for flat stocks that are profitable companies and then use iron butterflies to make income over six to nine month periods. Or if that just simply wouldn't work. I'd love your feedback on that. Thank you. Well, it will work if you execute it properly and you monitor it. Um, now, the, the first thing that you want to do when you're selling options and, and collecting premiums, that's really what this is. What an iron butterfly basically is, is you're selling out of the money call and put options, and then you're buying further out of the money call and put options on the same name. So I'll use a simple example. Let's say it's $100 stock. You're going to go and sell a 110 strike call and a $90 put. You're going to collect some premium from that. Now, the, the issue with doing that, if the stock moves big in one direction, you could be on the hook, right? Because you don't own the underlying. Now, what you do to hedge yourself is you buy a little bit further out of the money option. So you have a limited risk both ways, meaning you would buy maybe a $115 strike or $120 strike call, and you'd buy an $85 or a, an $80 put so that there's limited downside if the if, if the market moves big one direction. Now, your ideal situation, which you talked about, is the stock hangs around 100, all the options expire worthless, and net, you're going to earn something. You're going to earn uh, some sort of premium. That's basically what an iron butterfly is. And a lot of people do use those. Now, the first thing is you want to keep them relatively short-term. Whenever you're selling options, your goal is to get to the end of the curve. This with option income, selling puts and calls, and how to get income from them, is what part of the expiration curve do you want to be in and why you want to kind of keep it relatively short-term, 90 days or less, really 60 days or less. So focus on that. And then you really have to monitor these things. It's not really a set-and-forget-it type of strategy, you know, especially because there's you know, some, some risk involved. Um, and you have to do it smart on the right names, some names, what you're really doing is arbitraging what is called implied volatility, what is built into the price of those options, and what the actual volatility of the stock is. 
And typically you want to sell elevated volatility. Now, that's not the only thing you consider as well. You know, it's, it's the underlying position. What do you think it's going to ha- happen to it? Do you, you know, is, is it kind of within a range? You expect it to be in that range because of a particular reason, uh, et cetera. So iron butterflies, a lot of people use them. A lot of income investors, are, there are people that that's all they do are iron butterflies. But they're very experienced. They understand implied volatility. They understand all the, all the other Greeks when it comes to uh, options. Um, but it's not a set it, forget it type of strategy. And typically, like I said, you want to do it relatively close to, you know, a, a near term, excuse me, an expiration. Hi, this is Elizabeth in Florida. I was wondering if you could explain the difference between ordinary and qualified dividends and how I can tell which kind the company pays out. Thank you. All right. Well, the difference is simple. Ordinary is just what it sounds. It's taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. Typically, these are companies like REITs and limited partnerships. Mass limited partnerships are very common uh, in the market. So those are dividends that are paid. Those are passed through entities. And so they're paid at the ordinary income tax rate. And if it's more of your, your typical corporation that's listed on exchanges, and your income is going to be more qualified dividends. Um, so it's really about the corporate structure that they have and how those are paid out. And that's the difference between ordinary and qualified dividends. Thanks for the call. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to Richard in the Bay Area. He wants to talk about cash flow. Uh, Hey, Justin. Thanks for taking my call. Um, So I'm wondering what's the difference, like where the money goes between earnings and cash flow. Basic question for you, but I always wondered. And then the other question, sorry, I had was when I read earnings of REITs, is that the uh, SFO or AFFO, or do I have to specifically look for those numbers? Sure, yeah. So uh, for REITs, it's expressed as funds from operation. So that's more of like an operating number. Uh, And the main reason that's used is because they're mainly dealing in real estate. And if you look at earnings, there's things called depreciation. And you can kind of play with depreciation schedules in a big way. And it kind of skews the way the real business is operating because it's really all about cash flows when you're owning properties and renting them out. And that's a lesson for anybody out there that's investing in real estate. It's all about the cash flows, the funds from operations. So you always want to look at FFO. Um, and then that kind of informs what uh, your the answer to your first question is, what's the difference between cash flow and earnings is all of the things that are non-cash items in the earnings picture, like depreciation, like amortization. Okay, and those are accounting metrics that can be roughly accurate. Um, and there could also be gains that are added to earnings or you know, added to it to make it look rosier than it is. Um, and IBM was, or GE was, uh, sorry, not IBM, uh, GE was very good at this. Remember the Jack Welch era? You know, what they would do is they would sell a property and book a gain on it and make their earnings look a bit better or you know more in line with what analysts were expecting but that really wasn't reflective of the true underlying business and so that's why you know you want to look at things like ebitda or cash flow to make sure that that is a bit more accurate now 
Remember, cash flow is also broken down in three segments. There's operating cash flow, investing cash flow, and financing cash flow. So if you go and issue a bond or you sell stock, it's going to be positive cash flow. But is that really, does that really mean that the business is, is creating that cash flow? No, you're just selling stakes in the business, uh, whether that is an equity stake or a, a bond stake, and you're getting cash flow for it. So it's not just about the, the cash flow or free cash flow, but what about the operating cash flow? That's most important. So when you're digging into these numbers, you really have to think dynamically and understand what they mean. So hopefully that helped a little bit and shed some light on the accounting side. Not exciting, but definitely important when you're understanding these figures. Okay, remember we love beginner questions. Everyone who listens to this program either is a beginner or was one at that one time. So we welcome your question at 888-99-CHART. Now, what is the question? Is that when you hear a company say it's gonna buy its own stock back, that's a good thing. Yes. But let's say the company's current stock price is $20. What price are they buying their own stock back? They usually buy it in the open market, just like you would do that. Right. What they do, if you pay attention, David, they say, we're going to buy back $500 million worth of our own stock. Right. They'll say, we'll do that over the next year, two years, five years. They'll tell you the length of time. Oh, okay. And they will say that. And then they don't just go out and buy it like tomorrow. No, 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 no. And sometimes they'll buy it when they think it's the right time to buy it on low prices. Or the most common thing is they look for a downturn in that, that stock price and they'll buy it then to try to hold the price up. Do they like dollar cost average their own stock then? No, nope, uh-uh. they might buy $100 million today and then wait six months and buy another $200 million then. It's totally up to them and they don't tell you what their plan is in oh, detail. Oh, okay. So has their plan ever been to drive their own stock price down purposely to buy shares? Most of the time, no. It's to drive it up. No, I, no I mean, but I mean to buy their stock back at a cheaper price. No, they have no way to drive it down. They can't okay. manipulate it. In other words, oh, okay. that would be very bad, and they would get in a lot of trouble by the SEC. Oh, yeah, right. But, you know, these guys get in trouble all the time for doing crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> okay. If your answer is could they, the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, okay. Could. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, they could. Sure. Yeah, they certainly could. They generally don't. And you'll also find that they'll announce a buyback program, and they'll say they'll buy it back within two years. And, and two years passed, and they didn't fulfill their agreement to buy back their stocks. Sometimes they don't do what they say they're going to do, too. Now, wouldn't they get in trouble for that? Because it sounds like that that when you mention you're going to buy your own stock back, that that would raise the price of the stock up. You would think so. But they'll have reasons like we had better uses of the money. Maybe we wanted to put the uh, money to buying a new company. That was an opportunity. You know, they'll, huh. they'll come up with something. But I've yeah. seen them announce buybacks and then not actually follow through with the whole buyback. Yeah, that, that's not right. No. Appreciate it, Dave. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Thanks. Bye. Let's go to Josh in San Francisco first. How are you doing, Josh? I'm doing great. You know, the question I had was about variable annuities. My mother purchased one in her IRA. Oh, that's terrible. To take things back, she had a bad experience during the uh, pullback in the stock market, never wanting to invest in the market again before and because the annuity offered a guarantee she was able to get back in the market it was about four years ago and the account's been doing great and i know the costs are a little bit higher my question is what do you think about variable annuities and without the guarantee she would have probably stayed in 
savings or a fixed account. Josh, that's what they do. They sell them to the older people because they need that safety net. But they also are very attracted to the growth prospects. And, you know, I don't want to badmouth annuities completely. There are places for them. First of all, to put an annuity, which is a tax-deferred instrument, inside a tax-deferred instrument of an IRA makes no sense to me at all. Because you're tax-deferred for the 7 or 10 years that the annuity lasts. You know, you have to keep it forever a length of time. Yeah. Most of them are tax-deferred already. So why put, you know, you're not getting any tax benefit because you already have the tax benefit, number one. Number two, the structure is such that, that it's complex. These things are devised by insurance companies and very, very complex issues. The average person can understand how to calculate their returns because they're so complex. The fees are very high. You know what? They're they're really good when the market is collapsing because you have that floor. That's very good. But the reason why they make you hold on to them for 10 years, because any 10-year period in the stock market has always been up. So the people issuing these annuities know that they're going to make the money off of you. She's in a balanced account, and it's been averaging about 10% a year. So, I mean, she's a lot happier than if she would have stayed in a, in a CD. Well, that, you know, it's, if it's working for her and she likes it, I'm glad she's happy. How old is she? 62 years old. Okay. She should not renew it because she's going to start needing that money. And some of them allow you to take out 10% a year, but she should not renew it in her IRA. She only had a three-year commitment with it. That's very short. That's unusual. I've always seen them seven to 10 years. The biggest problem is the getting out of annuity because a lot of people need the money before the time, and they sell them to old people. Oh, I see. And a lot of times they need the money sometime during that seven to 10 year period and they can't get it without a nice stiff penalty. And then usually when they pull it out, not only do they have a stiff penalty, but they have to pay taxes on it at ordinary income tax level. And the argument there was, well, they're older, so they don't have a lot of taxes. So therefore, they're going to be taxed at a regular, a low rate. Well, that's not as low as 15% capital gains tax. There's a lot of reasons not to like them, Josh. Be very careful, okay? Okay, thank you. Thanks for the call. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. John and Oceanside. How you doing, John? How you doing? I'm pretty good. Uh, my question is um, I heard this uh, rumor people been talking about if you buy a stock that is interest and you reinvest the interest and hold on to that stock, eventually you get rich. Is that true? Well, uh, it depends. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a broad <laughs> statement. Uh, when you say you're talking about dividends, right? When you buy stock yes. and it pays dividends. I'll tell uh-huh. you this. Dividends make up about 30 to 40% of the return of the S&P 500 over the last 100 years. Dividends are very, very important. So when you reinvest them, the answer is it will help greatly get you rich. 
But you have to buy the right dividend-paying stocks. You can't buy a stock that goes out of business in 20 years or 10 years. Like uh, ExxonMobil? Yeah, ExxonMobil is a perfect example. It's going to last forever. You can buy a couple of drug companies you know, that pay very high dividends. You also want to buy companies that are growing, you know, growing their earnings and growing their dividends. So it's not just paying the dividends, but also increasing the dividends. So, John, you can build like a little portfolio of these high-dividend-paying, growing companies, and you'll do very well over time. Thank you. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Let's go to Keith in Sonoma. How are you doing, Keith? Yeah, Steve, I had a quick question for you. Sure. If I want information and to chat with other people that play a saxophone, there's a forum that I go to online, and I can talk to people all over the world about various aspects. Mm-hmm. Is there something like that for stocks? There is a lot of chat rooms in the investment websites. Yeah. Almost all of them have chat rooms. Be very careful with that, Keith, because you don't know who's a pumper dumper out there. Yeah, that's what I want. I want more like ordinary people like myself trying to educate and right. and make it do a better job of uh, managing my own portfolio. I can understand that, but see, when you get into an investment field, you've got a lot of scammers out there. Okay. That always okay. scares me when you sit there and you don't really know who's on the other end. I'm just going to warn you, there are good, solid information out there. There is. And yeah. you know you can get a pretty good feel for what companies are doing, but every once in a while there's a scammer out there inside that little chat room, guy who's trying to sell something. He'll convince you to move to this or to move to that, and he sounds very convincing. That's what I fear, Keith. I, I fear. Yeah. That. If you so want to learn no, more and more and more stuff, reading is always a good place. I know that sounds not exciting. You want to talk to people. Come to our conference. All it is is a teaching conference. We don't try to sell you a thing. It sounds good. If my back holds up, I'm going to try and get down there. Yeah. <laughs> There's no selling. We'll give you breakfast, and you know it's pretty reasonable, and we'll give you all kinds of handouts to help you. I really do love doing those conferences because of the teaching aspect of it. Okay, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Hey, Steve and Justin. My name is Ryan, and I'm 21, and I was hoping you could provide some clarity on earnings season terms. I'm trying to follow the earnings on the companies that I invest in. And when I was looking on their website, they were talking about diluted earnings per share and adjusted earnings per share. I was trying to look up the terms on Investopedia, since you two always suggest that website. And I was kind of confused. Um, I also saw convertible securities as well, something to do with diluted earnings per share. And I was hoping you could explain what these three terms are in layman's terms to someone who isn't too advanced on the finance terms. Uh, That would be diluted earnings per share, adjusted earnings per share, and convertible securities. Love your show. Thank you so much. Now, let's start off with the convertible securities. So there are such things as convertible bonds. That's typically what they're talking about when they're saying convertible securities, is that uh, when you own a convertible bond, you typically get some interest. It's usually lower than a typical bond. And you are owning a call option. And and the reason you get a lower interest is because you're owning a call option, basically paying for that call option for the upside of the common stock. So for normal bondholders, if the company does really, really well, you're still going to just get your interest payment and principal back. You're not going to participate in the upside and success of the underlying business and the common stock. But if you have a convertible security, that helps you do that and it converts at a certain price. Okay, But when that converts, it converts to shares and new shares are issued. 
means add to, adds to the number of shares outstanding of the company. And so when you're looking at diluted earnings per share, it's including all potential dilution that's out there if those options are triggered and that would create new shares of the company. So that's what diluted earnings per share means. It's saying, okay, what are all of the securities out there and how much of it could be potentially diluting shareholders and thus that's how you get the earnings per share because you divide the total net income of the business divided by the number of shares outstanding and diluted is not just the only the current shares outstanding but also potential dilution based on what else is out there in the marketplace hope that clarifies it invest talk is a trademark of kpp financial because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.